0: Welcome, everybody, uh, to Cato Institute's Hill briefing entitled The Promise and Pitfalls of Economic Sanctions. Uh, I am Peter Russo. I'm the Director of Congressional Affairs at the Cato Institute, and very pleased to have you here today with us. Um, Sanctions as a diplomatic tool, of course, have been a hot topic lately. Last week, the House of Representatives passed a bill aimed at preventing the President from lifting sanctions on Iran. Just this morning, the UN Security Council had strongly condemned North Korea's Sunday launch of a long-range rocket saying, it would adopt a new sanctions resolution in response, a new set. And later this year, the US Senate will take a vote on a sanctions bill constructed after North Korea conducted several weapon tests already forbidden by the existing sanctions regime. The deployment of this tool has many incarnations with differing targets from individual countries to individual leaders and their administration personnel to companies that do business with any and all of the above. But how effective can sanctions be as a means of achieving foreign policy goals? Certainly as an alternative to war, they have their benefits, but do they amount to a game-changing policy tool? Are there any unintended consequences that should give policymakers some pause? So let's explore all this. Speaking first will be, to my left, Eric Lorber, a practicing attorney who works in the area of international trade regulation, compliance, and anti-corruption, with particular emphasis on navigating the economic sanctions and embargo regulations administered by the U.S. Department of the Treasury's Office of Foreign Asset Control. His articles and commentary on sanctions and related issues have appeared in Foreign Affairs, Foreign Policy, Reuters, The Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, Cato, Unbound, among other outlets. Uh, Lober holds a BA in political science from Columbia, an MA in war studies from King's College London, and a JD from the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Emma Ashford is a visiting research fellow with expertise in international security and the politics of energy. She is an expert on the politics of petrostates, including Russia, Saudi Arabia, Venezuela and Iraq and has written widely, widely on not widely, yeah. Sometimes. Written widely on <laughs> Russian foreign policy and the politics of the Middle East. Her current research examines the extent to which international sanctions imposed on Russia have been effective and their impact on US and European businesses. Her work has been published in the International New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Foreign Policy, National Interest, among many others, and she has been a frequent guest on television and radio. Ashford holds a PhD in foreign affairs from the University of Virginia and an MA from American University School of International Service. Uh, We will reserve ample time for questions and answers at the end of our presentations, but for now, please welcome Eric Lorber. (laughs) Welcome with applause, if you can. (laughs) great.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Should probably hold the applause until after you hear uh, what I have to say. It's great to be here. Um, Thank you so much for Cato, uh, for the invitation to come and speak. I will say, and I should probably be very upfront about this, about 10 years ago, Cato gave me my first job uh, in foreign policy in D.C., and so it's really nice to be back here uh, and having the opportunity to to speak on a panel um, with Emma and then seeing my old boss over there in the corner, uh, Chris. To give you guys a little bit of a background, um, I come at this from the private sector perspective, so... Uh, My work involves advising uh, global financial institutions on compliance with U.S. economic sanctions, countering the financing of terrorism, uh, and other anti-money laundering uh, provisions and regulations. So I see this a little bit from the private sector side, and I'll explore that to an extent today, though uh, we can obviously um, go into that uh, in greater detail um, in the Q&A and as time permits. So as many of you um, clearly know, and it's probably the reason you're uh, at this panel today, uh, sanctions, and in particular powerful financial sanctions, have become a tool of first resort, as the administration is so fond of saying, um, in, uh, to address a variety of intractable policy issues, foreign policy issues, such as um, the battle against ISIS and terrorist financing, against Russia's territorial infringement um, uh, of Ukraine in, in uh, the spring of 2014. Um, against human, rights corruption, uh, human rights-related violations and corruption issues in Venezuela and Burundi. Uh, and we see that uh, these, this, this trend of using um, economic statecraft to achieve foreign policy goals is only increasing. So we know, for example, that there's obviously the bill um, coming through Congress right now uh, targeting, with the potential use of secondary sanctions, um, North Korean entities and Chinese entities involved um, in financing the North Korean regime. We know that there are sanctions designation packages related to China uh, for its cyber activities. Um, and we know that there are other potential uh, ISIL-designated uh, targets that are ready to go. And so I think that from a sort of a general perspective, the use of these economic tools is going to increase um, in the future rather than decrease. Uh, and so I think that at this juncture, it's, it's necessary for us to slow down and take a look um, to see what these tools are capable of but also what some of their limitations are uh, and I think that on, to a certain extent the question of their limitations um, has been under addressed in the policymaking community as people think that they're so very interesting and, and can have sort of this powerful impact um, I'd like to uh, take uh, uh, take my time today and divide it uh, broadly into four sections Uh, the first section i'm just going to discuss the development of these financial sanctions in the post-september 11th world just to make sure that we're all sort of on the same page and we are sort of sharing sort of the common vocabulary Um, then i'm going to talk about some of the uh, limits of these tools of statecraft um, in particular in achieving foreign policy uh, goals i'll let emma do a lot of this too because i know she's going to be focused particularly on the russia case which i'll also touch on Uh, And then third, I'm going to touch on some of the more uh, longer-term challenges for the continued employment of financial sanctions. So in particular here, I'm going to focus on the rise of other countries' sanctions efforts, which is actually um, occurring right now, and I'll go into a bunch of examples of how how that's happening, but then also how other countries are working uh, to blunt um, the effects uh, of U.S. financial sanctions moving forward. And then finally, after I've given sort of a – a talk of doom and gloom, um, I will turn to sort of suggestions and things we can consider doing moving forward to actually have a positive impact and to ensure uh, U.S. sanctions um, advantages moving forward. So on the first point, um, the financial sanctions we see today, um, employed against Iran, employed against Russia, uh, and many other um, both state and non-state actors, really grew um, out of September 11th and the post-September 11th world. Now, there's been you know, – we've had sanctions as part of a tool of foreign policy for, for centuries – Um, But really, uh, post-September 11th is when you saw the financial institution and the financial levers really become sort of the focus of of U.S. economic statecraft. Following uh, September 11th with the passage of the Patriot Act, Um, The president had the authority to require significant additional information from U.S. financial institutions um, as a way to block terrorist financing. And he also uh, was given, or he also has the authority and and developed the authority under particular executive orders to really give uh, these regulations teeth, enforcement teeth. Um, And then beginning in perhaps the mid-2000s, you saw a shift with these use of financial uh, tools away from just terrorism financing um, to proliferation activity. So in 2005, 2006, 2007, you saw the targeting of Iranian financial institutions, Bank uh, Sadarat, Bank Meli, Bank Malat, um, as, uh, as proliferation concerns. And basically what the U.S. did was it focused uh, its uh, financial power on these institutions, saying, uh, going to, to legitimate European and Asian financial uh, institutions and telling them, you shouldn't do business with these entities because they are engaged in proliferation activity. Uh, at the same time, uh, as we were focusing on Iran with these financial sanctions, so too were we focusing on North Korea. So I'm sure many of you are familiar with the Banco Delta Asia example in 2005 and 2006, when the United States targeted uh, a jurisdiction of primary money laundering concern related to North Korea, uh, in which many of the North Korean leaders kept sort of their, their, personal, uh, their personal funds. And in fact, this had a very significant impact in furthering the negotiations uh, between the U.S. and the North Koreans over their nuclear program at the time. Then in 2010, uh, I think you saw sort of a very significant shift um, uh, due actually to Congress uh, on these issues, and that was the passage of SASADA, which is the Comprehensive Iran Sanctions Accountability and Divestment Act. So basically what SASADA did was it imposed what are called secondary sanctions. People generally know what secondary sanctions are because there's a lot of misconceptions about what they are. Basically, uh, a secondary sanction um, is a uh, a sanction on a non-U.S. entity that puts a choice to that entity. So say, for example, a European bank that is not doing business in the United States, but is doing business, for example, with Iran. The U.S. says to that bank, you can either do business in Iranian markets, or you can enjoy access to the U.S. financial system, but you can't do both. And given the importance of the U.S. financial system, most of these uh, foreign financial institutions said, well, okay, we're gonna cut Iran off um, from continuing to do business uh, with us. Um, and so this had a very powerful secondary effect that was then further um, partnered with uh, oil sanctions uh, in a very clever way. So basically what the United States said was, if you're a foreign financial institution and the country uh, of your home jurisdiction, so say, for example, back, back to this, Germany, doesn't significantly reduce its oil imports from Iran, then we're going to cut your access off to the United States. And in effect, what this did Uh, was it forced these countries to significantly reduce their purchase and transactions in Iranian uh, in the Iranian energy markets among other markets and this had a very significant impact um, on the Iranian economy and I think you know we can argue about the the merits and demerits of the JCPOA and the uh, and, and and its implementation but I think it's it's fairly clear that, combined with covert action and another, uh, a number of other measures, that these powerful sanctions did bring Iran to the negotiating table and did end up, um, uh, that did result in uh, the signing of an agreement, uh, notwithstanding your particular thoughts on that agreement. Um, at the same time, um, policymakers began looking at these sanctions and sort of realized that, hey, these are really powerful. What other situations can we use them in? And, and this is when you saw the United States begin to impose a, um, a multifaceted sanctioning uh, campaign against Russia in the spring of 2014. And this, uh, this campaign involved sanctions that uh, were list-based, so designating particular Russian oligarchs. They were comprehensive, um, in particular related to Crimea. So as many of you know, you cannot, uh, you cannot uh, ship goods or receive goods or do any business with individuals in Crimea. And then also the new uh, sectoral sanctions program, which is... Um, basically a transaction-limiting type of program that targets debt and equity, among other things, for particular Russian financial institutions. Interestingly, um, this more sophisticated type of program came out of the, the basic and harsh reality that the United States could not use broad sanctions against Russia. Uh, It couldn't designate, for example, Rosneft or Gazprom or other major Russian entities because to do so would effectively rush, uh, um, excuse me, to do so would have have effectively uh, wrecked portions of the European economy and caused really significant, more significant damage uh, than already did occur to the Russian economy. So what the Treasury Department came up with was this idea of uh, narrowly targeting the types of transactions that US persons and European persons uh, can do business with. So we've seen, uh, again, over the past 15 years, this proliferation of this tool. Um, but in particular, there's a, there, there needs to be an assessment of how effective the tool has been. In the Iran case, I think you can make a pretty good argument that it has been fairly effective. In the Russia case, uh, it's not as clear. And the reason it's not as clear are two, re- are two, two particular rationales. The first is that the economic impacts of these sanctions uh, is oftentimes very difficult to predict. So, for example, in the case of Russia, when we initially opposed the West Bank sanctions program um, and the comprehensive sanctions program on Crimea and the SSI program, the impacts were actually much uh, greater than we had initially anticipated. You'll go and you'll speak to Treasury Department and State Department officials about this, and they'll say, yeah, we wanted to you know, really target P- Putin's cronies, we wanted to get out where the money was in his regime, and really put pressure on his inner circle. But the macroeconomic impact of a lot of these sanctions uh, was actually much more significant. So, for example, in the past year, you've seen Russian GDP decrease by approximately 3.8%. I don't know if everyone here remembers, but in the fall of uh, 2014, the price of the ruble, the value of the ruble, dropped by 45% um, against the dollar. And many people uh, were afraid that we were seeing a run on the Russian currency and that the entire Russian currency was, in effect, actually about, um, about to collapse. So interestingly, uh, now that didn't happen, and it was also not just a result of sanctions. Obviously, we know that the cratering of oil prices played a major role in this as well. Um, but if you talk to the Treasury Department officials, that was not their intent, and they did not anticipate having this, uh, this very significant impact on the Russian economy uh, more broadly. In fact, if they had uh, intended to do that, what they could have done uh, much more easily was just designate um, a number of these Russian companies, as I mentioned. So they were trying to narrowly target... Um, Uh, the set of transactions in order to put a particular pain on Vladimir Putin and his cronies. But in effect, what they did was uh, impose significantly more pain on the Russian economy than they thought they were going to. So there's this this point of it's difficult to control um, the economic impacts of these tools. Uh, And of course, as I mentioned, the oil price drop played a role here. Uh, but that actually goes sort of the, to the point because the oil price drop was not actually expected, clearly, um, and it, it created a situation that policymakers didn't think about when imposing the sanctions beforehand that they could interact with other factors to cause uh, unintended consequences. The second um, limitation, again, on the Russia, uh, in, in the Russia context that we've seen with the sanctions is the inability to predict the political consequences. So the purpose of the sanctions... Particularly in the spring and summer of two thousand and fourteen was to put this pressure on on vladimir putin 's cronies right um, and the idea was you put pressure on his cronies, his cronies would then turn to and people like Igor Sechin, and the, the, the chairman of, or the chairman of, of Rosneft, they would then put pressure on Putin to cease his destabilizing activities in Ukraine um, and in Crimea, but in effect, what happened was um, uh, when the sanctions were imposed on these cronies, many of them uh, spoke out against Putin. And instead of Putin changing uh, the activities he was engaged in, um, he actually sidelined many of them. So there are instances we've seen where he, um, he appropriated uh, significant companies from more liberal, um, more liberal members of his regime uh, in order to redistribute those funds and those assets to uh, more conservative members who were, continued to support him and did not put pressure on him. Uh, similarly, what you saw was that uh, with many of the members of the, of the inner regime who were opposed to continue destabilizing activity, he actually froze them out uh, in terms of the decision-making process. So there was evidence um, in, in summer and fall of 2014 that he narrowed his decision-making circle significantly to former, mil- former and current military leaders and pushed out many of his uh, former, um, uh, more business-oriented colleagues. And so there's this second-order uh, effect where not only are sanctions difficult to—not uh, only is it difficult to predict the economic impacts of these <laughs> sanctions, but oftentimes it's difficult to properly anticipate their political impacts as well. Um, the second uh, sort of major uh, potential—I'm hesitant to call it a limitation on these tools, but something that, that policymakers need to think about, think through clearly uh, while moving forward—is that we um, are not going to be the only ones uh, in the sanction game. Uh, And in fact, uh, potential adversaries are developing sanctioning tools uh, to use against us and our interests, but then also they're developing uh, tools to mitigate um, our use of economic statecraft. So on the first point... um, over the past year and a half, you've actually seen a number of other countries really get into this, um, into the game of using economic statecraft much more forcefully. So since 2010, for example, China has, has been incredibly adept at using subtle uh, economic pressure to challenge U.S. interests um, uh, throughout a, in a variety of areas, uh, particularly in the South China Sea and with respect to Japan. A great example is a, uh, there was a maritime dispute in 2010 between China and Japan, and, Japan, and China uh, cut off uh, rare earth metals, rare earth metal exports to, uh, to Japan in an attempt to coerce uh, a, political, um, a political settlement and for Japan to basically give up its, claim, its territorial claims uh, to a particular set of islands. Now, it didn't work. Um, but you've seen China do this in a number of other contexts, be it Japan, be it uh, with the um, blocking of imports of uh, Filipino bananas in response to the Philippines um, capturing a Chinese fisherman. And In fact, more recently, China has actually become uh, uh, more emboldened against using these directly against U.S. interests. There's an example um, uh, from a couple months ago where uh, China, uh, where the U.S. Uh, arms package to Taiwan was approved by the, by the administration, and China said to um, the United States and to U.S. companies, any U.S. company, defense manufacturer, that goes ahead and processes these transactions or aids in these transactions for Taiwan will no longer be able to do business in China. So this is a classic secondary sanction program. Uh, And it's the first time I think we've seen the use of these sanctions um, by uh, by another country against U.S. interests. And of course, they're not the only ones. Russia um, sanctioned Turkey uh, following the shootdown of the Russian fighter 24 fighter um, a couple months ago and the infringement of, of of Turkish airspace. And those those sanctions, which focus primarily on the tourism industry and construction projects, have had real significant really significant bite on the Turkish economy. And even our allies um, or, or non, uh, non-ally partners like Saudi Arabia have uh, begun to employ significant financial sanctions against members of Hezbollah um, and other uh, terrorist organizations by putting them on uh, designated lists. So we're really beginning to see this, this sort of next wave of economic statecraft that the United States, in effect, um, I won't say started, but uh, showed how powerful these tools are going to be, can be, and other states uh, have sort of begun to, to learn how to use them effectively. Um, and the second point uh, is simply that um, other states, like China as well, have also begun to develop ways to um, blunt the, the use of uh, U.S. financial sanctions. So, for example, China's push to have the renminbi set as a, a special reserve currency right now it's not only the the, the reason they did this um, was not only because of their you know desire to um, facilitate non dollarized transactions and therefore blunt the impact of u s financial sanctions however it was we, we do think it was a clear benefit um of pushing for the for the renminbi as an SDR that in the case where the u s begins to use um financial sanctions and really focuses on these dollarized transactions uh the other countries who sort of want to avoid these penalties can in fact turn to the renminbi um, as another reserve currency to use for international cross-border transactions. Uh, The second component, um, is that China has actually set up an interbank payment system that rivals or is parallel to SWIFT. So everyone knows that SWIFT was an incredibly important tool uh, in bringing economic pain uh, on Iran um, in, you know, within the past few years. And basically what SWIFT does is it, it provides a messaging service, a transaction messaging service, uh, that facilitates banks talking to one another. And so if you basically cut Iranian institutions out of that service – then they can't communicate with Western financial institutions, and it's very difficult for them to do business. China has developed its own mechanism uh, for for communication uh, for other countries who are interested in doing business in China. And what this does is it means that moving forward, uh, they may be able to basically uh, say... Well, if you don't want to do business with you in U.S. markets, and you don't want to do dollarized transactions, you can actually use our communication system instead of SWIFT, and this will decrease the leverage that the United States can put, put on you uh, in further sanctioning episodes. So I've painted a little bit of a, uh, something of a gloomy picture here, and for that I, I kind of apologize, I'm basically saying, well, we're not exactly sure what the impact of these tools uh, can be, and they can be undermined, and at the same time, other states are going to use them moving forward. Um, I will say that I'm actually uh, – I think that, the, that, that sanctions have proven incredibly effective over the past uh, five or six years, and they will continue to, 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 to be so, be effective, uh, but that we need to think through very clearly um, what their intent – what the intended and unintended consequences of them might be, and also how states are going to use them uh, moving forward. One idea which I've really heard bandied about – Uh, which is um, I think a good idea, and I've heard people from DOD, from Treasury, and from State all put this idea forward, is creating something like an interagency task force or an interagency office that is going to do two things. One is it's going to think through a lot of the in- unintended consequences for how, for the, sorry, it's going to think through what many of the unintended consequences of particular sanctions episodes are and think about ways to blunt those moving forward. And the second thing it will do um, is produce basically contingency plans. So plans that are designed uh, to be used off the shelf um, that have considered potential uh, unintended consequences in a way um, that will hopefully make these sanctioning episodes more, uh, more effective. Um, so I'm happy to take questions on that moving forward uh, during the Q&A. I'm happy to discuss um, any other topic related to sanctions, be it technical, legal, um, or otherwise. And with that, I'll turn it over to Emma uh, to, to give her thoughts. Thank you.
2: afternoon. So I'm very grateful to Eric for setting up with such a great broad overview of recent sanctions policy. Is that better? (laughs) Okay. It's it's a little too tall for me. I'm rather short. (laughs) Um, So thanks to Eric for for giving such a a great broad overview of sanctions policy. Um, And I'm really going to talk just about one specific case. I'm going to talk a lot more about the Russia case um, and what I think we can really learn from it. Because the Implementation of sanctions on Russia over the last 18 months has been, at the same time, one of the most ambitious uses of sanctions in sort of modern history, and also, I would argue, one of the least successful. Um, They've not been particularly successful. I'm going to discuss that a little as I go forward. And the real question is... Is there something that we can do to improve our sanctions regime against Russia, or do we just have to perhaps accept that there are some situations in which sanctions aren't all that effective? Um, And in framing that, I would just mention one particular factor. Russia is a very large country. Russia is, if not a great power, then at least a regional power. Russia is a major economic powerhouse. Many of the countries that we have imposed sanctions on over the last 15 years have been small states, states without a lot of economic clout. Um, Russia is qualitatively different from those states. And I think bearing that fact in mind as we talk about some of the unexpected consequences in the Russian case um, might be useful. Um, So first, just a little background information, um, just to highlight what sort of sanctions we used in the Russian case. And Eric already touched on this a little, Um, But the earliest sanctions that we used, March of 2014, right after Russia invades Crimea, we pretty much put on sanctions on entities or people who were actually involved in the seizure of Crimea. So high officials uh, around the Kremlin that we thought were involved in the decision-making process, companies, Russian companies in particular, that were doing business with Crimea, and then more comprehensive embargoes on what could go into or out of that state, or that, I guess, region, we would call it at that point. Um, But it's not until July of last year, um, right about the time of the shooting down of the Malaysia Airlines Flight 17, um, that we see sort of different, new, much larger sanctions program going into effect. Um, and the shooting down of the airline is actually a pretty good proxy for when the conflict in eastern Ukraine is accelerating. That's when we start to see rebel activity really tick up. The US is getting increasingly concerned about what Russia is doing there, funneling arms and money to the separatists. Um, and so we impose much more severe sanctions. Um, First, we sanctioned a lot more individuals. Uh, We put sanctions on people like Arkady and Boris Rotenberg, who are businessmen very close to Putin personally, that we believe profit from a lot of the corrupt activities of the government. Um, So we put sanctions on a lot of people like that, barred them from traveling, barred them from moving assets through the US and Western Europe. Um, Secondly, we sanctioned a bunch of Russian arms manufacturing companies. Um, So one example. KBP Instrument Design Bureau, um, which you've probably never heard of before. I doubt I would have either if I hadn't been studying this. But they mostly make heavy weapons uh, for Russia. They make uh, anti-aircraft guns. They make weapons that can be mounted on tanks. Um, We didn't sanction their weapons. What we sanctioned instead was their ability to finance themselves in the West. And for a lot of companies, that's actually a really big deal. So... These arms manufacturers became less able to finance new programs, new development, uh, new manufacturing lines without turning to the Russian government to do so. Um, thirdly, and this is where it sort of gets really interesting, we started to sanction Russian banks, as Eric alluded to. Um, so Bank Rossiya, which is known to be tied to the Kremlin, Gazprom Bank, which is one of the largest banks in the country. We basically prevented those financial institutions from refinancing themselves on Western markets. We cut their ties into the West. And again, this forced those companies to turn to the Russian government for financing help. And then fourth, we sanctioned various energy-producing companies. So Gazprom, Lukoil, etc. We didn't sanction their ability to export their product because, as Eric noted, that would really have harmed the European market. Instead, we made it difficult for them to get technology. We made it difficult for American (coughs) firms to engage in joint ventures in Russia to export various kinds of technology for shale gas, for unconventional drilling projects in the Arctic, into Russia. And that inhibited those companies' ability to explore new gas fields. with all of those sanctions specifically targeted, the goal was twofold. It was to put pressure on Putin and the rest of the people in the Kremlin to withdraw from Ukraine. And the goal being we put enough pressure on people close to them that they would change their minds about whether it was worth it or not. Um, and then we also hoped that the sanctions would produce budgetary pressures, um, Even though the Kremlin is heavily dependent on oil revenue, their pockets are not limitless, and the hope was that by forcing all of these companies to move away from Western markets, turn instead to the government for support, we could really put budgetary pressure on the Kremlin. Um, And the economic impact of all these sanctions has been relatively severe. So Russia's economy contracted by about 3% of GDP last year. Inflation hit 16%. That's extremely Um, The ruble has lost uh, more than half its value. All of these things are the sign of an economy that is really in trouble. And the Kremlin has had problems in creating financing for various companies. It's had to dig into its foreign exchange reserves, which have fallen substantially, in order to prop up ailing companies as a result. But this comes with a couple of big caveats. Firstly, we're talking about the impact of sanctions. Um, But in fact, oil and the fall in oil prices over the last year has had a lot more to do with this than sanctions have. Um, So it's really hard to disentangle the impact of the oil price drop from that of sanctions, because just coincidentally, most of those changes happened within about a week of one another. We put on the majority of sanctions in July 2015, July 2014, excuse me, and the same week oil prices fell substantially. So it's been difficult to tell what the impact of sanctions versus the impact of oil has been, but various macroeconomic analyses, um, timing analyses have all showed that oil prices have probably had more to do with this than sanctions have. Um, Insofar as sanctions have had an impact, they've probably just worsened the crisis and made it more difficult for the Russian government to respond to the economic problems. And then a second uh, caveat here. So there's a lot of pain in the Russian economy, but economic pain isn't really the metric that we use to determine the success of sanctions, right? If the goal of sanctions is to change minds inside the Russian government, that hasn't really happened. Um, We've seen a lot of what we might call in academic language punishment, but no coercion. We haven't seen them changing minds. Um, Since the sanctions have come into force, Russia fully absorbed Crimea. They continued the insurgency in the east of the country. Um, They added an intervention in Syria. Um, And even though they've come to the negotiating table uh, with the Minsk process, they've not followed through with it. And it's really unclear how much of a role sanctions played in that decision. Um, So... The bottom line is sanctions haven't really had the effects we wanted. There have been a variety of unexpected economic (laughs) effects, but we've not produced the policy outcomes we really wanted to see. And of particular interest to me is the fact that these new, sophisticated, targeted, smart sanctions um, have actually produced results much more similar to the old kind of comprehensive embargoes that we used back in the 1980s and 90s. Um, So one reason sanctions policy changed in the 2000s, 9-11 attacks and terrorist financing did play a big role, but the other reason was we had seen the failure of comprehensive embargo-style sanctions on Iraq huge human suffering as our sanctions caused the population to starve, be unable to get medicine, while Saddam Hussein's regime enriched itself. Um, And so targeted sanctions, they're supposed to avoid all of these problems, but in the case of Russia, what we find is kind of similar, though not nearly so severe, impacts. So Putin has been able to quite effectively shelter the people closest to his regime. Um, As Eric commented on, He's sidelined some of his more marginal supporters, and he's funneled a lot of the benefits instead to the people who are the strongest supporters of his own regime. So if you look at an analysis of how much wealth wealthy Russians lost in the last year as a result of currency fluctuations and the failing economy, people who were sanctioned lost about 3% of their wealth overall. Individuals who weren't sanctioned lost about 9% of their wealth. And this is because the Kremlin was able to award government contracts to supporters, um, to shift contracts from those that weren't strong supporters to those that were, and basically prop up their closest supporters at the expense of those who are perhaps more liberal, the people we really want the Kremlin to be listening to. The impact on the general population, too, has been worse than we would have expected. Um, These sanctions are designed to avoid impacting the population at large. But between inflation, government cuts to social services, um, many Russians have had problems paying back mortgages that were denominated in other currencies, as the ruble has fallen so far. There's been a big credit crunch in the country, and in fact, ordinary Russians are actually feeling the pinch um, of both the oil price drop and economic sanctions more than perhaps many of the elites are. Um, and the Kremlin has been able to continue military spending. There have been substantial cuts to every government department, but very few cuts to military spending. They're continuing to fund the things they want to fund, while hurting the people who perhaps don't support them. Um, and this sort of brings me to a final, perhaps major problem with the sanctions regime on Russia. Sanctions have actually produced domestic political benefits for Vladimir Putin. Um, They haven't made him unpopular. In fact, his popularity rating has risen 20 points since the the invasion of Crimea last year. Um, Putin tells the Russian people that sanctions aren't related to Ukraine. It's the United States, it's Western Europe. We are trying to inhibit Russian economic development. Um, We're trying to hobble Russia's sovereignty or independence, or I think at one point he even said their right to exist. And sanctions from the West are directed not at Russia's aggressive actions, they're just directed at the Russian people. Um, and in doing so, we're basically giving Putin an out for a lot of his bad economic mismanagement. So if most of the economic problems came from oil and not just from sanctions, what we find is that Putin is able to blame his poor economic mismanagement on Western sanctions. If the sanctions didn't exist, he would have to explain to the Russian people why the economy was in such a bad shape. Um, So these are all sort of unexpected consequences, political consequences that we would not have seen when we put sanctions on, but today pose a major problem. Um, And then in the Russian case, we also find some evidence of some of the longer-term problems, things that Eric highlighted right at the end of his comments. Um, We see Russia making steps towards joining or creating alternative international institutions, um, a BRICS focused uh, alternative to SWIFT, um, something called the New Development Bank, which would be an alternative to the IMF and the World Bank, um, discussions that they might start trading oil in non-dollar currencies. So we see a currency swap with China last year, RMB currency swap in exchange for oil, allowing them to bypass the dollar entirely. Um, And then we also find uh, another longer-term problem, which is the costs to markets. In the US, and particularly in Western Europe, is not insignificant. We often act as if sanctions are largely free. They're relatively costless to us. But in the case of the Russian sanctions, um, these costs are being borne by U.S. and European businesses. Um, And Europe, I think, is estimated to lose about 2 million jobs if sanctions remain in place over the next three to five years. That's a substantial cost to them. For U.S. companies, um, energy companies stand to lose a lot of money from joint ventures. uh, Exxon had to withdraw from a very large $3.2 billion investment uh, in the eastern part of Russia, Um, they'll lose that if sanctions continue. And so these are sort of negative externalities that we tend not to think about when we view sanctions only as a tool of national security and not necessarily thinking about their economic costs. Um, Compliance costs for banks, um, for financial institutions, is also an increasing (coughs) burden on those institutions, none of which means that sanctions aren't worth doing sometimes, just that perhaps policymakers should be a little more careful in thinking about the costs versus the possible or intended benefits. Um, So, again, before I end this on a sort of a really depressing note, um, just saying the sanctions didn't work, um, I think it's worth pointing out there were some sanctions on Russia that do appear to have been at least moderately effective. Um, The bans on elites asset freezes, travel bans, they're an inconvenience, but they are an inconvenience that is annoying many among the Russian elite. Um, And so keeping those in place for the long time, they're not particularly costly, they could end up having some benefit. Um, And then there's some evidence that the sanctions on Russian arms manufacturers that I mentioned right at the start have actually been somewhat effective in slowing Russia's military modernization program. It's made it harder for these companies to import parts, it's made it harder for them to obtain financing, set up manufacturing, all things that are relatively useful if we want to slow down Russia's rate of military modernization. So the takeaways from the Russian case, um, I think, will be really interesting for sanctions policy moving forward. As I noted right at the start, the Russia case is just qualitatively different. You know, our two other largest sanctions, um, Iran and Libya over the last 10 years, both relatively small countries. Russia is a large oil-exporting country, and so it's interesting to see how the impact of sanctions on such a large country has been very different than on many of these smaller countries. Um, Sanctions can be a powerful tool. We have cases where they've been successful, but they don't always work. Um, And I think the fact that there can be serious downsides or unintended consequences really suggests to me that what policymakers need to worry about is not whether we can predict the unintended consequences up front. It's about whether we're willing to reconsider sanctions once those consequences become apparent. You know, so we don't end up necessarily in a situation 50 years from now where we have a Cuban embargo-style sanctions still on Russia if it's costing us. We need to start thinking about how we can at certain intervals, reconsider whether sanctions policy is still serving our interests, whether there are policy alternatives that might work better, and how we would move forward to that point. So I will turn it over to Peter, and hopefully we can discuss this further in the Q&A.
0: Thank you, Emma, for that. Very good. Very good. Um, we are going to open up to q and I'm going to start the... Stuff on the Hill this week, both in the Senate and the House, will probably involve a lot of, well, will involve North Korea. Is there, what should Hill staffers think about approaching North Korea in diplomatic terms and or in foreign sanctions? Is there a a basket of sanctions that might be more effective to a country that's completely outside the diplomatic channels that Russia enjoys and to a certain extent Iran enjoys?
1: Right, so, um, make sure it's called I think the North Korea issue um, is obviously a very tricky one, uh, particularly with regard to the potential for secondary sanctions um, on entities supporting North Korean proliferation uh, activity, uh, both for ballistic missiles um, and for um, and for their nuclear program. I think the the element that, and the administration surely knows this, um, that should be kept in mind is the political and diplomatic uh, tension and problems that can arise when the United States thinks about employing uh, these types of secondary sanctions, particularly in the, in the case of, of China. So, I know we're talking about North Korea, but if, if we remember back uh, to 2011, in the Iran context, the United States actually uh, imposed secondary sanctions on a Chinese bank, Bank Kunlun, right? Uh, and the reason why is that this bank was, um, was, was doing illicit transactions for a variety of Iranian uh, financial institutions. And this actually caused a major diplomatic row uh, with China now, if you really want to go ahead and pressure North Korea over its over its proliferation activity and its ballistic missile activity, you're going to need, to a certain extent, Chinese buy-in. Um, and the idea that uh, that you would impose a secondary sanction on a variety of Chinese actors who are supporting these North Korean programs um, is a very significant uh, and and it's a very significant move that I think um, would, would cause a significant diplomatic tension between the two countries. So that, if there's one thing I would keep in mind, I think it would be
0: that.
2: Yeah, um, and so there's, there's another political problem too. And one of the reasons why China is not so keen to continue upping sanctions on North Korea is because they're honestly worried that it might destabilize the regime in Pyongyang enough that they might have chaos, they might have North Koreans trying to flee into China if the state collapsed. And so there are concerns in Beijing about just increasing the sanctions on North Korea. And so they're more worried about the long-term consequences of upping sanctions than they are necessarily about the proliferation issue. I think finding uh, the diplomatic task is going to be finding a level of sanctions which we can all agree on without necessarily keeping those fears of regime instability.